it never ever fails welcome it is eric erickson here it, it never fails the the moment the radio show goes live the guy with the with the leaf blower decides to get close to the house <laughs> welcome the phone number if you want to be a part of the program 877-97-ERIC 877-973-7425 uh, we must begin today with unfortunately we must begin today with the new york times which has decided that we need to tear down the uh, tear down Mount Rushmore. Uh, the New York Times, it is bad. Now, here, here's the thing. When Barack Obama went to Mount Rushmore to give a campaign or, or political speech of some kind, the New York Times kept its mouth shut. The New York Times had no problem when Barack Obama went to Mount Rushmore. But Donald Trump is going to Mount Rushmore, and now Mount Rushmore needs to be canceled. Uh, th this is the New York Times piece today. How Mount Rushmore became Mount Rushmore. The South Dakota landmark has drawn criticism over the land it occupies, the main sculptor behind it, and the legacies of the minute memorializes. The minute memorializes uh, George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, Teddy Roosevelt, and Abraham Lincoln. Uh, this year, for the first time in more than a decade, there will be a major fireworks display to commemorate Independence Day at the Mount Rushmore National Memorial. The sculpture features the faces of four American presidents, Washington, Jefferson, Theodore Roosevelt, and Lincoln, carved into a granite slope over the Black Hills of South Dakota. In the eight decades since the carving was completed, it has never been without controversy, except when Barack Obama went there. So when President Trump announced in May that he would attend the festivities there, it invited even more scrutiny of the monument's history. Wait, 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 wait. It invited who got the invitation? The New York Times. Native Americans have long criticized the sculpture in part because it was built on what has been indigenous land. And more recently, amid a nationwide movement against racism that has toppled statues commemorating Confederate generals and other historic figures, some activists have called for Mount Rushmore to close. The sculptor's four faces, that's the subtitle that we're about to get into, the four faces of the sculptor. During the 1920s, a historian in South Dakota, Doan Robinson, was mulling ideas for a monument that would draw tourists to his state. Mr. Robinson originally envisioned a sculpture memorializing figures of the American West, such as Lewis and Clark, problematic people now, or the Oglala Lakota leader Red Cloud. But the sculptor, who was ultimately chosen for the project, Goodson Borglum, settled on a concept to pay tribute to four former commanders-in-chief. He picked four presidents he thought represented major accomplishments in the American story. Before he was recruited to create Mount Rushmore, Mr. Borglum had been involved with another project, an enormous bas-relief at Stone Mountain in Georgia, memorializing Confederate leaders. <gasps> the Georgia angle rears its head. It was eventually completed without him, but Mr. Borglum formed strong bonds with leaders of the Ku Klux Klan and participated in their meetings, in part to secure funding for the Stone Mountain Project. He also espoused white supremacist and anti-Semitic ideas. You mean like Louis Farrakhan, who you people are okay with? According to excerpts from his letters, 
Yeah, I mean, the Louis Farrakhan anti-Semitic stuff. And, you know, Ice-T now, apparently. Someone's called Ice-T out for his anti-Semitic comments. And and dude's famous and still gets all sorts of attention. After the sculpting of the Black Hills Monument began in 1927, a women's rights advocate named Rose Arnold Powell fought to include a likeness of Susan B. Anthony because, of course, she did. She enlisted Eleanor Roosevelt, who wrote with support of the idea. He opposed it, and a congressional bill to add Anthony's face stalled after the House Appropriations Committee said funding would be limited to the work already in progress. Work on the massive monument was arduous, spanning 14 years of dynamite and jackhammering. The project slogged on through the Great Depression and the beginning of World War II. On and on and on and on we go. An early plan to carve the presidents down to their wrists was scrapped. The project was finished in 41. Highways were built. Road tripping became a national uh, pastime. Mount Rushmore cemented its place as a must-watch place. Independence Day fireworks became an annual draw to the monument beginning in 1998. Under which president? That, That would be a Democrat. They were stopped in 2010 because of wildfire concerns. And then, of course, there's the American Indian stuff. Uh, oh, 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 and, and here we go. Listen to this one. And although Lincoln was behind the Emancipation Proclamation, a move some have characterized as reluctant and late. Some have probably the reporters. He has been criticized for his response to the so-called Minnesota uprising in which 300 Native Americans were sentenced to death by a military court after being accused of attacking white settlers in 1862. Lincoln said he found a lack of evidence in most of the cases and reduced the number of condemned to 38 who were hanged. Okay, wait a second. So we're going to tear down Mount Rushmore now. See, this, my friends, gets to the point I was making yesterday. The New York Times wants to tear down. This is what the Taliban does. This is what the Islamic radicals have done. And now you've got a major American newspaper whose building is built on land swindled out of the Indians by the Dutch, calling for the destruction of Mount Rushmore, essentially, uh, because Mount Rushmore was built on Native American land and Abraham Lincoln himself was problematic. This is a, a religious experiment of religious fundamentalists leading the New York Times uh, who doesn't even want to account for their own sins. When is the New York Times going to reimburse the Indians who were swindled out of the land on which the New York Times building is built? Is the New York Times going to tear down its own building? And this gets me full circle to where I was yesterday. Here's the problem for the left. As I mentioned yesterday, have you ever played with an electric uh, electromagnet? Uh, it's got wires. It, it, the one I, I remember distinctly when I was in sixth grade in Mr. Middlebrook's class, uh, it was this. Uh, it was blue cylinders with magnets in the middle, and you could touch them. I mean, and nothing nothing would stick. Yeah, I mean, you could just pull them apart like this. I'm I'm bouncing my hands back and forth with each other on fingertips in the camera for those of you not watching a live stream of it. The moment you put electricity on both sides, the whole thing would clamp together, and you could not pull it apart. It was so impressive. You absolutely, as long as there was electricity there you could not pull the sucker apart and it i mean it just it stuck the magnet together donald trump is the electricity for the electromagnet of the democratic party the moment donald trump goes away the democrats have big trouble uh, that, that electricity goes away from the democratic party and the whole everything falls apart donald trump galvanizes them 
See, most people in the United States of America would abhor the idea of tearing down Mount Rushmore. Most people in this country actually don't support tearing down statues of George Washington and Thomas Jefferson. We, we, we can quibble on the Confederates, but among the Union side and the founders of this country, no one really has a problem except for millennial white hipsters in Seattle and New York City who work at the New York Times. They are the American Taliban. And when Donald Trump goes away, they will be a minority within their own party. Right now, they can do what they're doing because everyone is so focused on Donald Trump and blames Donald Trump. But the moment he goes away, they become fringe voices again. But the Democratic Party is being hijacked by them. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez getting more and more prominent position within the Democratic Party. The Democratic Party giving voice to this idea. Elizabeth Warren trying to harness it as well. You know, eventually the revolution comes for the revolutionaries. Ask Robespierre. Oh, wait, you can't. They beheaded him. They will come for the radicals after the radicals first come for them. Right now, the radicals on the Democratic side are coming for all of us. And and this, I, I think, does play into the president's hand. If the president can just be careful with this stuff, for Pete's sake, if he can if he can be focused and careful with this stuff, the president can use this as a winning issue. But he's got to focus on it. Do you know, in, in um, as, as long as, look, when Donald Trump goes away, let me get back to the electromagnet before I, I jump to this next point. When, when, when Donald Trump goes away, the Democratic coalition falls apart. You've got a lot of conservative black and Hispanic voters who don't have a home anymore because progressive white atheists who are way more wealthy than than the base of the Democratic Party will control the party. And the abject, uh, the paternalism of these white Democrats. I mean, look at the white people who want to be the lead voices on racism in America within the Democratic Party. Uh, Three weeks ago, it was put up a black square on Instagram and listen to black voices. And now it's all these white people. I I listened and put up my black square. It's my turn to talk. You shut up, black person. That's what the Democratic Party has done. You got a bunch of white liberals in the Democratic Party essentially talking over the black voices they wanted us to listen to three weeks ago because it's not actually about doing anything different. It's about these people feeling good about themselves. And when Donald Trump goes away, the black voices who are being stepped on in the Democratic Party and the Hispanic voices, where are they going to go? Are they going to stay with the left-wing Taliban that wants to tear down statues of America's founding fathers? Black and Hispanic voters don't actually support that. The only people who do are are really progressive white rich people who've never been in a church without getting set on fire uh, just by the the force of God of them trying to come in the door. They don't they don't go to church. They they hold religion in contempt. They hold a lot of these people in contempt for their values. They are completely outside the mainstream of America, but they are the mainstream of the Democratic Party at this point. And they will be turned on when Trump goes away. Right now, all of the Democrats are focused on Donald Trump. When he's not there for them to focus on, they're going to focus on each other. And you've got going to have a lot of seething resentment 
of more moderate. They're still liberal. Please, please keep that in mind. They're still liberal, but they're way more moderate than, than the Alexandria Ocasio-Cortezes and the Bernie Sanders of the world and the Elizabeth Warrens of the world. And they don't want to be a part of that. They don't want to be a part of the project of tearing down America. They don't want to be a project of redefining America. They don't want to be in the hate America first camp, which is where the Democratic Party is headed with these voices leading them, fixated right now on Donald Trump. Donald Trump is is the, the emblem of hate America. When Donald Trump is gone, what will they have to hate on? The flag, George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, the Declaration of Independence, the Constitution, what? Most people are, aren't in support of that. Donald Trump allows them to galvanize. Donald Trump allows them to stick together. Donald Trump allows them to focus on Donald Trump. When he's gone, who are they going to focus on? They will turn on each other, and it will be calamity. But right now, right now at this moment, they are rushing because they know it. They understand that this is their moment, and they have a limited amount of time. They have to rush this forward as quickly as possible because they kind of intuitively know when Donald Trump goes away, they're not going to be able to focus on him anymore, and they're going to start fighting with each other. And so the progressive vanguard— is rushing forward to tear down all the monuments and, and, and claim as much territory as they possibly can right now so that it, they can claim the high ground. And that actually is going to hurt them. Do you know the number of gun owners in this country has skyrocketed? Eight million gun owners. Actually, that's wrong. It's four million. Eight million guns sold, four million of them to new first-time gun owners. It's a massive new gun ownership project in this country going on. And that long-term, by the way, helps Republicans. Second Amendment voters tend to vote Republican. They don't whether they remember why they had to buy their guns and they're not going to go back. And they're particularly not going to go back when the left wants to march through the streets, burning down houses. Uh, they're coming after the couple in, in Missouri who defended their property with their guns. This doesn't end well for any of us, but it really doesn't end well ultimately for the left. Donald Trump is either going away in January or in January four years or five years from now. He will be term limited. He will not leave until then if he wins re-election. If he doesn't win re-election, he's gone in January. These people are in a rush to do as much damage as they possibly can, knowing that everyone's going to turn on them. They are astute. They don't, they don't have a sense of history, but they do understand in history these revolutionary radical movements tend to fall apart because they turn on themselves. And, and uh, the, the highly educated white liberals who are in charge of it, they understand that, but they're trying to wreak as much havoc as possible right now because they actually think it hurts Donald Trump and they actually it makes them feel good about themselves. It is a religious experiment, a, a religious experience for themselves. And it's going to do damage to them ultimately, which is a good thing, frankly. We need everyone to turn on these people. Right now, they are leading the movement. At the New York Times and elsewhere, you got a bunch of woke millennials who are destroying the reputation of the New York Times, doing things like, I mean, attacking Tom Cotton for daring to put in an op-ed, wanting to tear down Mount Rushmore while being oblivious to their own newspaper. The Times will change against these people. The question is when. Uh, if they go too far, too fast, people could actually turn on them right now and keep Donald Trump in office if the president plays his hand right on this. That's that's my concern. The president has a hard time staying on message on this. 
But if the president loses, it's going to happen after January. Now, Joe Biden is going to be hijacked by a number of these people, and that's going to make people turn on Joe Biden. And then the people are going to turn on those people who hijack Joe Biden because they will be worried that they will bring up the second coming of Donald Trump in four years. All of this means you and I need to stockpile popcorn and sit back and watch these people tear each other apart. It's me. Welcome. The phone number, if you want to be a part of the program, is 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. Guns, guns, guns. Uh, Yes, I mentioned this. Uh, So, by the way, wait a second. There's other news I need to mention real quick because this is good news. Let me me get to it. Um, the, The jobless claims, actually. Uh, the economy is definitely restarting, uh, the job smash expectations, uh, the job, the unemployment rate fell to 11.1% non-farm payroll rose by 4.8 million in June, much better. They were expecting an increase of 2.9 million jobs, but it was 4.8 million jobs. The unemployment rate fell to a crisis low of 11.1%, better than the 12.4% they were estimating. That actually is really good news. Also, breaking news right now, Jeffrey Epstein's friend, uh, Ghislaine Maxwell, has been arrested by the Federal Bureau of Investigation. Yay. Um, well, <laughs> Hillary Clinton comes for her next. I kid, I kid, maybe. Job claims are great, but yeah, the other data that's out there, I mentioned it in the last segment, over 8 million new gun purchases in the United States in one month. That sets a record. Poor old Piers Morgan. Poor, you remember Piers Morgan. He, he He's crying. Piers Morgan is crying. Uh, he's upset about the, he, he's upset about all of this. Piers Morgan uh, it's, it's just too many guns in America now, too many guns. I personally think it's a great thing. I, I think it is brilliant uh, that we have that many gun owners now in the United States of America because gun owners vote Republican. And, and this, and you've got over 4 million of these guns. Now, you've got 8 million guns sold in one month and about half of them to pre-existing gun owners. The other half to new gun owners. That is a good thing, my friends. That is a very good thing. And what we're seeing here in the trend lines is as civil unrest spreads across the country, more people are buying guns. You know, it's actually hard to buy ammunition right now, Uh, which reminds me, I noticed down in in, uh, Warner Robins, they've got Clyde's Armory has opened up a a place down there. Um, uh, It's, it's, I'm, I like my my favorites though. I go to Adventure Outdoors in Atlanta, uh, go to uh, Shot Spot over in Carrollton. And around here, we drive down to Barrow Automotive, um, the the gun store in in Butler, Georgia, which is the greatest gun store ever. Um, You should do that. Now, this is the perfect segue, actually. It wasn't going to do this, but I will. Uh, True Precision is a sponsor of the program. If you want to upgrade your gun, you buy a gun and you want to upgrade your gun, go to True Precision. Now, why should you go to True Precision? Well, True Precision makes works of art. Uh, You want to upgrade your barrel. You want to upgrade your slide. uh, Do something different with the grips. Talk to the guys at True Precision. Their website is true-precision.com. I'm going to have to go in in one of the long commercial. We don't have long commercial breaks here, but I'm going to have to go find my gun and hold it up. For those of you on camera can see it. They sent me this Glock 43X uh, for concealed carry purposes. And it is a stunning gun. I've put it on Instagram before. It really is a beautiful gun. Um, It's not just a a gun for gun's sake. It's not just a Glock for Glock's sake. It is beautiful. 
what they did with the slide, what they did with the barrel, the grip, the sights, everything is so fantastic. I still got to upgrade the trigger. I got to get the new trigger on there. They've got a great trigger. Um, if you go to true-precision.com, you can check it out. And here's the deal. Uh, you can buy a lot of these parts because you're not buying the gun. You're buying the parts. You can buy them online at true-precision.com. And if you use my name, Eric, E-R-I-C-K, at checkout, you'll get a 10% discount. And they can ship to you wherever. Uh, you want to slide? You want a barrel? You go to true-precision.com. Wherever you are in the United States of America, go there to true-precision.com and turn your gun into a work of art too, like they did for me. It's fantastic. Okay, uh, we'll see if I get banned from Facebook for doing this as I live stream. I, I decided I would go find my my gun that I have from True Precision. I won't point it at the camera lest any of you progressives who are watching have issues, but if you can see this sucker, this is, and I, and I realize I, I'm actually a radio show host and I'm doing a radio show, but I will describe this to you. So I, I've got uh, the, the, the barrel is just fantastic. It is black. It, it, it is threaded. Uh, and then I've got a slide and it is a camo pattern. It is steel gray and black. Uh, and smoke, they, they upgraded the sights to it. it. It's a 43X. The grip is improved. Uh, True Precision did all this stuff. And I am such a fan of what they've done um, to the gun. Uh, it just it, it's, it is a work of art. Uh, I love it. And if you go to trueprecision.com, uh, true-precision.com, you too can check it out. Um, oh, they, they slowed my Facebook feed while I was showing off my gun. Or I'm having Facebook trouble anyway, but I, I'm a big fan of it. Okay, all right, all right. Ghislaine uh, G- uh, Maxwell has been arrested by the FBI uh, I'm just going to go on record here and say she did not kill herself. Um, <laughs> we we will see that the jokes do write themselves. Uh, I have not seen the Netflix documentary on Jeffrey Epstein, but a bunch of people have told me I need to watch it. Uh, I'm going to do something here. I wasn't going to do it, and I have decided to do it. I think it is is worth doing. Uh, and this is not intended to be lazy radio. And I, I, am that, that's why I'm explaining it, uh, this way. <laughs> so yesterday in the, the last half of the third hour of the program, I did an interview with Laurel Bristow. Uh, Laurel Bristow is an expert epidemiologist at Emory university. And I have been going through my spam folder this morning and I'm, I'm getting emails from people and, and text messages from people on the list are saying, can, can you play this again, please? I only caught the last part of it. Uh, and I've never actually had demand from people to replay an interview that I'd done, particularly when I did it the day before, but I know how radio is and people float in and out and you can't be here all three hours. And I really want to make sure people hear this. And so the result of this is what I'm going to do is I am going to shut up here and I want to replay this interview with Laurel Bristow, uh, that I did in the third hour of the show yesterday because it really was a good interview and she makes a lot of sense. Uh, She is an expert epidemiologist and I did ask the question that every single one of you want an answer to, uh, should we reopen schools in the fall? She's got an answer to this. So I know some of you heard it because you're loyal listeners and you stayed for all three hours. Many of you have to float in and out, but I absolutely want you to hear this. 
So my wife is a huge fan of my next guest, uh, wants to go ride motorcycles with her. Uh, she is an epidemiological researcher uh, at uh, Emory University. She is an epidemiologist. She has been to one of the most beautiful places on planet Earth, Zanzibar, which makes me really jealous. Uh, and she actually knows what she's talking about. I just pretend to, but she actually does. Uh, joining me is Laurel Bristow. Laurel, thank you so much for taking the time out to do this. Of course. Thank you so much for inviting me. Yeah, and my, and my wife, she wanted to be in here, but I realized I don't have a headphone jack for her, so she can't listen. But she says she she really wants to ride motorcycles with you. She sews, she rides motorcycles. She's awesome, and she thinks you are. <laughs> I, I would love that. I would love to go ride motorcycles with her. Well, I, I will I will let her know for sure. Okay, so I, I, I tell my audience all the time, I, I try to bring them the latest data, and I realize, particularly among conservatives, there's a lot of skepticism of the news and the like, but you've got all of these politicians want people to wear masks. Masks. Uh, you've got Slovenia, Taiwan, Singapore, Japan, South Korea, and now the Czech Republic, which had a big beer bash yesterday, having had everyone wear masks. Their countries are going back to business because they've worn masks. Um, can you, as, a, as an epidemiologist, talk about the, the necessity of wearing masks? Yeah, absolutely. So first, I understand that it's incredibly confusing. In a pandemic, everyone's getting the same information at the same time. And so you're making um, policies based on what is available to you. So they change and it can be really hard to keep up with that. The reason that we want people to wear masks and the reason that this virus is um, so much more difficult to contain than something like, say, the flu, is that we have found that people are the most contagious right before they have symptoms. So unlike the flu or other viruses, you, where you're the most contagious uh, when you have the most symptoms, uh, if you have a lot of symptoms, you're more likely to be self-isolating, to be staying home and staying away from people because you feel terrible and you know you're sick. When you don't know you're sick, but you're still spreading the virus, you could be out and about in the community. You know, you're going to the grocery store, the post office, kind of high populated areas and unknowingly are spreading your infection to other people. So the reason that we want people to wear masks is basically so there is a barrier between your infection and other people. The idea is that a mask will deflect the droplets coming out of your nose or mouth so that they cannot get into somebody else's. And that way we kind of break the chains of transmission and reduce the number of people that get infected out in public. Now, it, it, that's one of the important things I think that I, I try to emphasize with people is that uh, you don't know you're contagious until it's too late. So you, you may wake up today and feel perfectly fine and actually be spreading the virus and then tomorrow feel bad and stay home, but it's too late. Exactly. And I think there's also a lot of confusion with the um, terminology that's been used regularly. You know, people say asymptomatic when what they really mean is pre-symptomatic. There's a lot of reports, you know, asymptomatic people don't spread the disease, et cetera, et cetera, which might be true, people who never develop symptoms. But we do know for a fact that people who are pre-symptomatic, so people who don't currently have symptoms but will develop them in the future, do spread the disease. And you can't possibly know if you're going to be asymptomatic or pre-symptomatic. So I always advise people to just ask, act like you have coronavirus right now and take on the personal responsibility to try to protect those around you. Yeah, yeah, that's that's it, it, one of one of my frustrations is is that this whole you, you just be a good neighbor to people and and assume that I mean like my wife has lung cancer I, I don't want her out and about with people who've decided uh, their liberty 
requires them to not wear a mask when they they could get my wife sick even if she wears a mask and and I guess that that's one of the things I hear from people is oh well you know uh, if you wear a mask uh, you you may you may still inha- inhale the droplets but my understanding is yes you might but you certainly do re- reduce the risk of doing so. Yeah, absolutely. It's all about reduction. The more people that we can get to wear masks, the less virus will be circulating out in public. So even if masks aren't perfect at protecting you personally, which of course they are not, especially cloth masks, and they're not completely perfect at blocking the virus from getting out of someone, the point is that any percentage that we can reduce transmission, we want to take because there are going to be people who are going to be seriously affected by this. People like your wife are, you know, um, immunocompromised and extra, extra susceptible to having really poor outcomes. And, you know, I just think it's, it's a personal duty and a personal obligation to try to protect everyone as best as your ability. If it's difficult for you to wear a mask, um, you know, try to make other accommodations. I like to tell people, you know, you don't have to wear a mask, but you also don't have to go out and don't have to go to restaurants and don't have to be around people like anything that people can take on to try to limit the spread. We really encourage that because it is really just like all of us against this virus and it shouldn't be us against each other. Now, so on Sundays, typically my, my family, as we wind down, we, we climb in the car, we just go for a ride. The, the kids like to go out and try to spot deer in, in the countryside down in middle Georgia. And my wife typically will open your Instagram feed and occasionally go through and, and listen to you talking about some of the latest research. And I believe I've heard, don't hold me to this, please, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I think I've heard you one time uh, say to a degree that one of the frustrating things that you deal with as a researcher and an epidemiologist now is that the flow of information is so fast and not all of the studies are necessarily accurate, but they get out there and they cause confusion. And and I actually am curious from your perspective as someone in in the field, uh, is the, the rapid spread of all of the conflicting information out there making it more difficult uh, for you as a researcher? Yeah, I certainly think so. I mean, the difficulty lies in the fact that this is a pandemic, it's a new virus, and so it can be helpful to have access to what we call preprints, which are papers that people have written that haven't been peer-reviewed, haven't been approved, you know, and rigorously checked as good studies. Those get published, and so some people take those as fact when they're not. Now, it's important that we have access to those so that we can communicate between research groups quickly. You know, uh, one group might be looking at something and see a preprint that helps them answer the question of what they're trying to figure out on their end. So that collaboration is really helpful. But I think it gets confusing because there's so much information coming out. Not all of it is vetted. Um, And then things get updated really quickly and people have a hard time keeping up with it. I mean, I'm in the industry and I have a hard time keeping up with it. So people in the general public who are trying to figure out what's best for them and their family, I completely understand how it could be so frustrating that recommendations change. And what right now, what is your recommendation to people? And also in that regard, how do you interpret the data right now that the virus is going up, but we do seem to have a still be having an overall decline in deaths and hospitalizations, although that the hospitalizations does seem to be going up right now? Yeah. So the way I've described this virus is that it is going to thrive on people's impatience, you know. Things started opening up, and then several weeks later, we're now seeing this increase in cases. And we are doing more testing, 
But the thing you want to pay attention to, which I've talked about before, is the percent positive. If the percent positive is going up with testing or is exceeding the percent increase in testing, that's when you want to start to um, look at things more carefully and get worried about an increase in the actual circulation of the virus. Now, you mentioned um, that deaths are going down, and they had been very low for a while, but I also think give it a week or two and those deaths are going to come up. Um, if more people are getting tested or getting tested earlier, obviously it takes longer for severe disease to develop. And also those people have the potential to have spread it to um, family members or community members that are more vulnerable. And so I think this, this sort of thing just takes time. And so we don't want to declare victory against COVID too soon. We would like things to be, you know, at a steady decrease or under a certain threshold for you know, at least two weeks in a row before we start to relax about anything. Is there any hope on the horizon in, in your, because I, I know you've looked at a lot of these studies or participated in, in overseeing some of the vaccine trials. Is there anything on the horizon medically right now that that gives you some optimism or encouragement? Yeah, I feel optimistic a lot of the time. I think, you know, this is really a global effort to face this virus. And so there's a lot of work being done by just the absolute best of the best out there. You know, we're getting increasing, uh, increasingly promising treatments for people who are in the hospital, which is good because we want to reduce mortality and reduce the time it takes to recover from this virus. I think there's several, several vaccines that are in the pipelines that are getting tested, that are, you know, in the process of being checked for safety, um, that are showing promise. And, you know, there's also changes to the virus itself that could potentially, you know, be beneficial in terms of how serious it is. So things are moving incredibly quickly right now, and we're trying our best to keep on top of all of the information and let people know what they should pay attention to and what they don't need to worry about as much. But I have incredible optimism. I do think that this, you know, is not going to last forever. It's just a matter of us being able to adjust our routines until we have a solid understanding of the virus and then can make better long-term informed decisions about how to approach it. You know, as a pessimist, it always gives me encouragement to talk to an optimist, but, but I'm never disappointed by being a pessimist so that's true <laughs> yes yeah it is uh if my, if my wife were in here she'd be rolling her eyes right now um let me ask you one last thing be before i let you go and thank you so much of for course. doing this there's a lot there has been a lot of research but i think some of it has been mixed on kids spreading the virus to adults and, and it seems like i hear a lot that there's no evidence of kids doing this and so we should send kids back to school and yeah the american academy of pediatrics say it was better to have them in school than not and i, I would actually like an, an expert's take on this as opposed to the mixed messages i keep hearing yeah so the kids situation is incredibly difficult because the research is very mixed um, you know, it's not that there's no transmission, but it's definitely a lower transmission. But then you take into account, you know, in schools, kids have a lot more contact, person-to-person -person contact than adults do in their day-to-day -day life. So that can increase transmission. So it is something that I think a lot of groups are working very hard on to try to get solid evidence so that parents can feel comfortable sending their kids back to school. Um, I will say, you know, as an infectious disease researcher, as an epidemiologist, and also as, you know, someone who is single and childless and the demographic for bars and restaurants, I say close indoor dining and let kids go back to school. If we're going to risk outbreaks or transmission, I think it's important that the kids be allowed to go back to school. It's a lower risk situation and we need to mitigate uh, infection where we're able to do it. And that I think would be a good way to do that. 
Well, listen, I, I, I can't thank you enough for doing this. This is actually really helpful, and, and I'm, I'm glad to be able to, to share your opinions across the state on the radio show because, gosh, I, I, I hear you every Sunday coming across Instagram uh, when, <laughs> when my wife opens, and so it's great for everybody else to be able to hear you, and I just can't thank you enough for doing it. Well, I really appreciate the opportunity. I'm glad that you reached out to me, and I'm happy to be able to give people um, solid information in kind of a crazy time with information overload. Well, if you see this tattooed lady from Middle Georgia pull up on, on her fat boy uh, and, and want to go for a motorcycle ride, I, that's my wife and she's safe. <laughs> Wonderful. All right. Thank you so much. Laurel Bristow. I got to confess something. Uh, a lot of you did want me to replay that interview with Laurel Bristow so you could hear the full thing. And it was timed perfectly because the guy with the leaf blower showed up right outside the window and... You would have heard that if I hadn't muted the microphone. So it was perfect timing. Now, I want to play some audio here real quick. Josh Hawley uh, was on Fox News. Uh, the St. Louis prosecutor wants to go after the couple who defended their property. They were, if you will recall, their neighborhood set behind private gates. The protesters crashed through the gates and were saying they wanted to burn down the houses. And those that couple stood out on their front lawn with their guns uh, to keep the protesters away. It worked. Well, now the left is mad at him. Here's uh, Senator Hawley from Missouri, who is their senator. Senator, uh, these two protecting their own house, they broke down the gate, but yet now most people, most news organizations are, are vilifying them. It's an incredible thing to see, Brian, especially when you consider that this same St. Louis prosecutor has had dozens and dozens of violent criminals referred to her by the St. Louis police, and she hasn't prosecuted any of them. She hasn't even charged any of them. She's turned them back out on the streets. And then you've got this couple who, by the way, are on their own property. They never left their property, just standing there with their perfectly First Amendment, Second Amendment right, rather, to keep them bare arms, standing right there. And they're going to be investigated? I mean, it's just insane. But they're attorneys themselves. And I was looking at Jonathan Turley's uh, Twitter account, who's hardly a right-wing, a left-wing firebrand. And he says this might be tough to defend because of public sentiment right now. You, the former attorney general, does he have a point? Well, I mean, public sentiment shouldn't come into it when you're talking about the law. And the truth is they are on their own property. They are standing there. They have a Second Amendment right to keep and bear arms. They felt that they were being threatened. The video shows folks on their property shouting threats at them. And the truth is they never left their property. I mean, they, ne- they never went toward the crowd, got off the property, you know, waved the guns around to get them back on the street. They stayed right where they were which is their right to do. And the idea that you wouldn't prosecute actual violent criminals who are shooting cops, who are burning buildings in St. Louis, those people don't even get charged, yet you're going to investigate and maybe prosecute this couple? I mean, that's really an abuse of power. It is an abuse of power, and they don't care. Everybody is is scared of the mob right now. And uh, this couple defended their property. I, I really, I, I couldn't care less about the story, except for that, uh, when the mob comes for them. Uh, it, it's it's just, it, it's offensive to me that people want to drag this couple and shame this couple. Uh, did, did, or we sh- we, should we have let their house be burned down? I mean, I, I guess because it is historically significant, uh, everybody wants to tear down everything. Elsie Granderson. 
I don't even know who L.G. Granderson is, but apparently someone of note was on CNN. Uh, listen to this. Well, I do believe that uh, Vice President Biden is trying to thread a needle, but I don't believe this is a, a topic in which a needle can be thread. It's either right or it's wrong. And the question of where does it end, I will answer that question with the question, why did it begin? Why did those statues get erected in the first place? Why were these naval, these bases all around the country named after Confederate uh, figures to begin with? When you, ask, when you ask that question, you can answer it truthfully, not with whitewashing history, but truthfully, then you're no longer compassionate about finding the answer to where does it end, because you realize it should have never been there in the first place. And I understand there are a lot of beloved figures. I'm very excited, by the way, to see the live stream of Hamilton. And I recognize Hamilton's role in terms of the founding fathers and, and the writing of the Constitution that did not declare me to be 100% human. But I will say this. There is a difference between, in 2020, fighting to continue to honor these despicable figures versus recognizing perhaps we should have honored them in the way that we're honoring them in the first place. Don't erase the history, but why is the history being celebrated with monuments and statues and buildings being named after them? Um, Y'all, we're, we're having a problem in this country. And when people want to target the founding fathers of this country, what they're targeting is the founding of this country, which everyone agrees was not perfect, but it set an ideal standard. Even Jefferson recognized this. It was setting an, it was setting an ideal one that everyone knew we weren't really living up to, but one that we could strive to live up to. And tearing down the monuments to our founders is something every single person, regardless of, of race, creed, or religion, should oppose. Uh, we are, wh whether they want to admit it or not, wh whether anyone wants to acknowledge it, we are the greatest country on planet Earth. We are unique in human history in that we are a nation uh, that was not founded on, on blood and soil, but a nation founded on ideals. You can read those ideals for yourself, and you yourself can strive to live up to them and call on others to live up to them. And instead, what the left wants to do now is tear it all down and start over. These are radicals who need to be stopped. I learned something new. You can get Quip toothbrushes at Target now. You can. My wife actually got one the other day, replacing her old one she's had for several years and finally decided it was time to get a new one in a new color, uh, which she got at Target. But if you want to check out Quip, you should because my wife has one. My kids have them. I have them. I've had them for a while, and it actually is my favorite toothbrush. Uh, why? Because it's like a toothbrush. You can tell it's designed by dentists and designers together because it's like a regular toothbrush. It's actually designed so you can get it to the back of your teeth and the back of your mouth without a giant brush head that causes problems in your mouth like some of the 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 big rechargeable toothbrushes out there quip has a great brush head on it it vibrates cleans your gums cleans your teeth every time i go to the dentist they want to know if i'm whitening my teeth no i'm just using my quip every day for two minutes just like quip says uh you use it for two minutes every 30 seconds it pulses so you can get a new you can know to rotate it in your mouth now listen i use my toothbrush twice a day Two minutes, just like the quip says, it turns off after two minutes. You can redirect it in your mouth. It, it lets you know through pulses. And my dentist, my orthodontist, they think I'm bleaching my teeth. I'm not. I'm just getting a really good brushing with my quip toothbrush. You can too. And every three months on a subscription basis, you can get a new brush head to keep your quip toothbrush up to snuff. Now, 
If you go to getquip.com slash Erickson right now, you'll get your first brush head refill pack for free. So you get your first brush head, brush head refill pack for free at getquip.com slash Erickson. It's G-E-T-Q-U-I-P dot com slash Erickson, E-R-I-C-K-S-O-N. It is the good habits company and it'll get you into the good habit of brushing your teeth. Hello. Uh, so this this part of the program right now, well, well, welcome first. It is Eric Erickson here. The phone number is 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. I've already had to send a middle finger emoji to my producer once today. We'll see how many more times it happens in the next hour. (laughs) This part of the program right here is dedicated uh, to Abby, the, the program director at WGAU in Athens. I, I don't know whether whether she's listening or not, uh, but this is dedicated to her because I I, I know where uh, I, we follow each other on Instagram. I know where she has some passion directed and we need to discuss this topic because uh, her life is going to be upended unless you people change. She is going to be, I, I don't want, I, I like to keep, so, you know, I, this is the Eric Erickson show and it is, I do a show in the evening and I have corporate overlords uh, for my evening show on, on the radio in Atlanta. It's the one that actually pays me. I do this show entirely for free. I make no money off of the show. Yes, three hours of radio a day and I haven't made a penny, but I love it. I could do this the rest of my life. My wife would get upset because eventually I do need to earn income from it. But man, I, I get up every morning. It, it is a blast. I love it. But I, I feel like the program directors of the various stations and the owners of the stations are are somewhat my boss because they choose to take a risk with me and put me on their radio stations. Uh, Jeff Batten up in, in Habersham County uh, and WCHM was the very first station uh, to put me on all three hours. And then uh, WRGA up in Rome, put me on. But we, we started, our flagship station was in Athens, Georgia, because Abby, the program director there, and, and, and Pete there, they took a they took a chance on WGAU with, with this show. In fact, they, they run only the, the second and third hour of the show because they have a, a brilliant host who's on until 10 a.m., and we don't want to step on him. Tim Bryan is amazing. And But my first week on the radio until WCHM in Clarksville uh, picked me up, I did the first hour of the show and no one could listen. And now I do three hours and we've exceeded 15 stations. We're about to pick up another station. We're just a Georgia show. I would One day I want to be a national show. I love talking Georgia and I don't want to give up Georgia. And I want to figure out a way to balance that. I live here. I want to be able to talk about it. Uh, but at the same time, I, I, want to, I want to be a national syndicated radio show host. To do that, I got to keep the PDs happy. And, and I know Abby, who, who was the first PD to say, we're, we're going to take the show. I know where her passion lies, and it is with University of Georgia football. And so I have to tell you this and dedicate this to to Abby. Wear a mask or no college football this year, writes Greg Bluestein at the AJC. And all he's doing is he's parroting the governor of the state of Georgia, a diehard University of Georgia fan who on Wednesday launched a wear a mask tour. The governor of the state of Georgia 
is going around the state of Georgia telling you to wear a mask. He's not going to force you by power of law to wear a mask, but he wants you to do it. And this is the quote from the governor of Georgia. If people, especially our young people, don't start wearing a mask when they're going out in public and our numbers keep rising, it's going to be a tall task to have college football. If we hunker down right now, dig in the next two or three weeks, we can get this thing turned in the right direction. The governor of Georgia has embarked on a seven-city tour amid a troubling increase in coronavirus infections and hospitalizations around the state. Recent data shows a spike of cases of the disease among young adults in Georgia, protesters and partiers. The governor does not want to force people by order of law to wear masks. The city of Savannah has become the first city in the state to order people to wear masks. The governor says he just wants to strongly encourage people to do it. The state of Georgia is one of five football programs in the nation that wants a full college football season. But we set a record last week with 11,000 new cases of coronavirus. 3,000 new cases of the disease came on Wednesday, shattering uh, the single-day record of 2,225 set this past Sunday. According to the governor, people have let their guard down. We're moving in a positive direction. Summer hit. People were itching to get out after weeks or months of being shut down, not only in this state, but everywhere. And people got lackadaisical, according to the governor. And college football may have to not happen. They're not going to do college football if you people don't wear masks. He's not going to make you, but you're going to ruin Abby's college football season. If you don't put a mask on, You're and it's not just her, it's your family too. I see all you people around middle Georgia with your UGA stickers on the car and you don't care about baseball or basketball or track or badminton or tennis or whatever other non-sport sports they play. You care about football. We all care about football. And if you don't put your mask on, we're not going to have college football. You don't have to believe the governor. You don't have to believe Greg Bluestein. You don't have to believe me. You don't have to believe the expert Laurel Bristow from Emory University. Here's someone else to talk about it. Uh, speaking of COVID-19, Goldman Sachs put out a model yesterday saying that if there is universal masks, it would be a net positive for GDP. We know the IHME model says that if there were universal masks, that it would be beneficial, it would save lives. So if there is an economic benefit, sir, and there is a public health benefit, sir, why not go forward and, and say there should be mandatory masks all across this country? Well, I don't know if you need mandatory because you have many places in the country where people stay very long distance. You talk about social distancing, but I'm all for masks. I think masks are good. I would wear, if I were in a group of people and I was close. You would wear one. Oh, I would, I would, oh, I have. I mean, people have seen me wearing one. If I'm in a group of people where we're not, you know, 10 feet away, and but usually I'm not in that position, and everyone's tested. Because I'm the president, they get tested before they see me. But if I were in a tight situation with people, I would absolutely. You think the public will see that at some point? I mean, I'd have no problem. Actually, I, I had a mask on. I sort of liked the way I looked. Okay, I thought it was okay. It was a dark black mask, and I thought it looked okay. It looked like the Lone Ranger. But, uh, no, I have no problem with that. I think, uh, and if people feel good about it, they should do it. The Lone Ranger. Here, here's one more clip of the president. Will you consider wearing a mask, and if not, how come? Well, I've already had masks, and 
I've worn a mask, and if I'm near people, you know, you were tested, right, just now. And everybody that's around me as president gets tested. That's like standard. Uh, and I'm also, I keep distances. I'm you know, supposed to keep a distance, and I keep distances. But if I needed a mask, if I was in a crowd, a, you know, a crowd, a lot of people and everything else, I'd wear them. I have no problem with a mask at all. And I tell people, I have a different kind of a life. Being president, you have a little bit of a different life. You're not that often. I don't think it makes sense when you walk up. I see Biden walking up on a stage where there's nobody around and the audience is 25, 30, 40 feet away. Not too much of an audience either, by the way. And he's speaking. He has a mask on and you can't even understand what he's saying or he takes it off up there. When there's nobody around, I don't see any reason to be wearing it. But no, I have no objection to masks whatsoever. Do what you're supposed to do. And also do what makes you feel good. Do what you're supposed to do. Do what makes you feel good. Y'all, you know, I've gotten a whole bunch of angry people mad at me for for telling people to wear masks. We're we're not going to have college football. Is that enough incentive for you to wear a mask? College football, you you pick your sport. If, If we don't get this under control... We're not going to have a football season. Abby's going to be upset. I'm going to be upset. You know, my next door neighbor who's a big UGA fan, he's going to be upset. He doesn't want to wear a mask. He's going to start wearing a mask now when he finds out that that college football uh, could be in jeopardy. I mean, that's the thing I've been saying really since this whole thing started in March and April. People didn't want to shut down. People didn't want to flatten the curve. People really didn't care. Uh, Make it about college football. People are going to have to care. And I, I, yes, I, I think they're going to have to, um, and, um, man, y'all, we, we gotta, we, we gotta, we gotta do something about this. The numbers, let me, let me pull up the numbers right now. You, you know, if you text the word data to three, three, seven, 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 uh, I will send you the link back so you can see it for yourself. The Georgia department of public health website. Uh, we've got uh, total confirmed COVID-19 cases in Georgia, 84,237. Keep in mind, that's cumulative. That's not current. Um, we've got, let's see here, uh, the number of cases. So let's see. We had on the 15th, 1,641. The 16th, 1,553. The... The 17th, 1,583. The 18th, 1,543. The 19th, where's the 19th? Oh, the 19th skyrocketed. That's why 1,627. Get over to the 22nd, 2,708. 1,818 on the 24th. 1,883 on the, the, or 583 on the 26th. And it just keeps going up. The trend line just skyrocketing. Now, there is some perspective on this, uh, on on what's happening with the virus. We're hearing about this in Texas as well. And it appears along the border in Texas. There's actually one of the reasons the hospitals on the border of Texas are full or people are coming from Mexico getting better medical care in Texas and they filled up the border hospitals. There's actually a number of reports on that. CNN did something on that along the the Texas border. But there's other stuff here. Uh, Mark Siegel, doctor, was on Fox News talking about this. Hi, Tucker. Tucker, it's being widely reported that there's over 40,000 new cases of COVID-19 yesterday. 
It's been widely reported that the South and the West have been hard hit. It's been widely reported that Texas, Arizona, California, and Florida are reversing aspects of their reopening. It's been widely reported that Dr. Tony Fauci says we could see as much as 100,000 new cases a day. I'm not sure where that number comes from, but that's what he says. That's all been widely reported. Here's what hasn't been reported. As the case counts are going up, the death rate remains under 700 per 24 hours per day of new cases. Why? Why is that? Because most of the people that are getting COVID-19 now are young people. And the CDC just re released a statistic that again was not reported, that of the last 15,000 deaths from COVID-19, only 3.9% were under the ages of 44 years old. The same group that's now spreading it in Miami or spreading it in Austin, Texas, or spreading it in Phoenix. That group has mild cases. It's been widely reported, as you just said, that the hospitalization rate is going up, but it's not reported that it's not mostly COVID-19. It's actually the cases that were there because of the reopening, because they're now getting the elective surgeries they need, cancer operations, heart disease operations, hernia operations. That they're filling the hospitals. Only COVID-19 is actually getting in the way of that because these mild cases require isolation. Tucker, it's not been widely reported until now that our young people are bursting the bonds of all of this because of the excessive lockdowns. They're rebelling and it's not good public health That's right. because of how depressed and anxious they are of having been locked down. You know, Siegel makes very good points there in the, the age, the people who are going into the hospital, they're younger, they're rebounding, they're coming out. Uh, the problem here, though, is that the young people, if they start spreading it back to people who are over the age of 50, uh, we're going to start having problems again. And and that, my friends, is uh, that that that's the issue we're dealing with here. Younger people are recovering more quickly. And I know there are a lot of people who want to talk about herd immunity. The problem is uh, you can't get herd immunity without it spreading back to the 50, 60, 70, and 80-year-olds. And that spikes the death rate and overwhelms hospitals again. Uh, and if people just wore a mask, we would start mitigating it. I, if, you were, if you were here in the first hour, you heard me talking to Laurel Bristow, uh, who points out that, you know, the, the mask doesn't actually keep all of the particles out, but the, the particles are also respond to gravity. And when you wear a mask, it blocks the particles from spreading directly forward and pushes them with airflow up or down. And if they go up, they come down. And if they go down, they, they just go down and they don't spread out into the open. And that's the purpose of the mask. It, it keeps you not knowing you have the virus from transmitting it to other people. Uh, and it keeps other people. It minimizes their risk of inhaling the particles. Does, doesn't get rid of it altogether, but it certainly improves it. And now you got the governor of the state of Georgia saying college football season could be at an end before it even begins unless people do the right thing and start putting on the mask. And I would really like to see college football. So please, 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 let's let's put on masks when we're going to the grocery store and the like. Listener Trey, <laughs> he sent me an email. Wear a mask for Abby and for UGA. Yes, I agree. Uh, wear, wear a mask, um, and, and maybe we can have football season. That that's the only thing I'm, 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 listen, we got to find common ground somehow or another folks. And, and if we could find common ground by, by watching, uh, the sec dominate the rest of the nation yet again, uh, that is what we need to do. Uh, I, I got to play you some audio from Bill de Blasio, not, not a, not a brilliant guy. Um, Bill de Blasio 
is um, the mayor of New York who has a real hatred of religious Jews in New York City. I mean, the man really does. He, 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 I don't understand why he is so hateful to Jewish, Orthodox Jewish believers, but he really has a thing against uh, Orthodox Jews in, in New York City. He has repeatedly sent the police to harass them. It is really scary how the national media has turned a blind eye to this guy. They're so fixated on Trump being the next Hitler. Uh, we got a guy in New York City who who wants to round up all the Jews and arrest them, and he's been doing this, sending the police to harass them. It's, it's horrifying. Now listen to this. I want to ask you about a court decision from last week. A, a federal court ruled that you and Governor Cuomo violated the Constitution by restricting religious services during the lockdown of the pandemic. The court said you openly discouraged religious gatherings and threatened religious worshipers and sent a clear message that mass protests are deserving of preferential treatment, essentially saying that you treated the protesters who were on the streets differently than the religious gatherings that were on the streets. Your reaction? Just wrong. Um, We worked with the religious leadership of this city for months, Cardinal Dolan in the Catholic Church and so many other religious leaders who were in full agreement that it was not time to bring back religious services because of the danger it would cause to their congregants. The protests were an entirely different reality, a national phenomenon that was not something that the government could just say, you know, go away. It's something that really came from the grassroots and obviously had profound meaning, and we're all acting on the meaning of those protests. But it's really apples and oranges. Our religious leaders were the first to say it was not time to bring back services. Now we're doing it carefully, smartly. So I I think that decision profoundly misses what the very religious institutions themselves were saying. It's just, it's striking to see most of the media, and and it's good to have him being pushed on some of these questions. It it really is striking to see, though, how so much of the media wants to ignore what he's done. He's locked them out of parks. He's gone to synagogues and rounded them up. And and then he says, well, you you know, for example, it was just a couple of weeks ago when de Blasio was asked about it in in New York City, why he was shutting down religious services of Jews who were gathering in parks outdoors to worship versus uh, the protesters. Well, we've had 400 years of discrimination in this country against against uh, black people. It's completely different. I was like, do do you know the history of the Jewish people, Bill de Blasio? anti-Semitism on the rise in this country. You know, it's apparently some media outlet has pointed out some of the, the anti-Semitic statements made by, what what's that guy, Ice-T, uh, the, the actor, rapper, and his lawyers are threatening to sue now for pointing out his history of statements. Man, y'all, we, we, we got some problems. And here's my real frustration on this, is the media has become all about get Trump, the media has willfully decided to um, ignore any story that could paint the left in a bad light as much as they possibly can. There are some they can't help but do. But as much as they can, they want to make it all about Trump. And, you know, when they when they do these stories about the left, tearing down statues of George Washington, of Catholic priests who protected the, the, the Indians from Spanish slave traders and all that, they, they always make it about Donald Trump. It's Donald Trump's fault this is happening to the left, according to the media. It is Donald Trump's fault. They The media is profoundly broken. 
it is profoundly upended, and they have joined cancel culture to shut down the right. Uh, and honest to goodness, uh, that's going to come for the media. People are going to turn on the media on this stuff. Uh, you know, Tucker Carlson, I, I don't agree with Tucker on everything, but but I do think Tucker uh, has his pulse on the public in a way a lot of people don't in that he really does recognize that a lot of Republicans are caving to the mob instead of standing up to the mob. And that may get them short term, but long term, the mob is going to come for them, too. They might as well take a stand on this stuff. They might as well take a stand against the mob. And too many of them don't want to. Uh, the mob will come for them. You're not going to negotiate with the mob. You know, somebody knows that Mark Zuckerberg at Facebook seems to be the only one who gets it. Hello there. Um, I, I didn't want to do this. Uh, just just one more thing before I get on to other stuff. Um, it, it is irresponsible when I talk about the media and the irresponsible of the irresponsibility of the media. I, I personally find it highly irresponsible that members of the media want to shame people for going to the beach during this crisis of, of the virus and refuse to shame the pride marchers and refuse to shame the protesters and refuse to shame the rioters. You're going to shame people for socially distancing on the beach and you're not going to do that for everyone else. And by the way, uh, they, they are clustered around. Um, clustered around uh, individually, uh, keeping their distance in their in their personal family tents on the beach. They're not transmitting the virus. There, there's actually no evidence that people are transmitting the virus, uh, staying in clusters together of families on beaches. Uh, and there's actually more evidence that the protesters and rioters, every day now, more and more comes out from contact tracing that didn't exist a, a week ago. The media has refused to expand the story. A week ago, there really wasn't evidence from contact tracing or anything else, that all the protests were spreading the virus. We are a week removed from that, and in contact tracing, we can find more and more around the country, including right here in Georgia, protesters spreading the virus. And the media doesn't want to talk about that. No, no, we've got to move on to the beaches. That was that was old news. That's irresponsible, and that is why people don't trust the media on this, and that is why so many people I get are skeptical of when the media tells you wear masks and things like that. Um, that that is it's 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 irresponsible. Let me tell you something else that's irresponsible. This is horrific. I want to read you this from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, Chelsea Prince. A former Troop County commissioner once called a prolific collector of child pornography will have a chance to spend the rest of his thousand-year prison sentence on parole. The State Board of Pardon and Parole released Peter Mallory on parole May 27th. three weeks after an appeals court found the sentence for his conviction was appropriate. District Attorney Herb Cranford said he opposed the decision but was powerless to stop it. Cranford on Tuesday released a statement explaining his opposition after he said several members of the Troop County community expressed concern over Mallory's release. Mallory, 72, former owner of LaGrange television station WCAG-TV, was convicted of 60 counts of sexual exploitation of children, three counts of invasion of privacy, and one count of tampering with evidence in December 2012 after a three-week trial. 
He was charged as a result of a LaGrange Police Department investigation initiated in February of 2011. According to prosecutors, police were alerted to more than 600 suspected child pornography files linked to a computer in LaGrange, which led them to the television station Mallory operated. More than 26,000 files of child pornography were seized. The evidence demonstrated that Mallory knowingly and intentionally sought out, gathered, downloaded, and saved these images and videos of children being raped, tortured, and sexually exploited, according to the district attorney, Cranford, who had prosecuted the case. The invasion of privacy count stemmed from a hidden camera Mallory installed in his office that he used to secretly record young women. At sentencing a few months after the trial, Coweta District Judicial District uh, Judicial Circuit Superior Court Judge Dennis Blackman called Mallory probably the most prolific collector of child pornography in the entire world. His conviction and sentence was affirmed by the Court of Appeals on May 7th. Cranford advocated against Mallory's release in a December letter to the parole board. Mallory was first eligible for parole in December of 2019, seven years after his conviction. According to a parole board spokesman, Mallory's eligibility was determined by Georgia's sentencing laws for consecutive sentences despite the length of his sentence. The board reconsidered the case and set a new parole month of December 2022. Cranford said he opposed parole now or at any time in the future and said the Troop County community would be offended if Mallory was released after serving seven years of a 1,000-year sentence. The evidence shows that Mallory is sexually deviant and commits these crimes by compulsion as much as by choice. In the current digital age, no amount of supervision can stop a compulsive sexual deviant like Mallory from seeking out the most heinous images and videos of small children being sexually abused. Two victims involved in the case opposed parole. At a minimum, they asked that Mallory be banned from Troop County and from contacting them if he was released. Mallory's crimes did not allow for the state to seek or the trial court to impose a sentence without parole eligibility, and parole is a power exercised exclusively by the State Board of Pardon and Paroles, the district attorney said. In an April response to Cranford, the parole board said earlier release was possible due to performance incentive credits. Board spokesman Steve Hayes said Mallory actually served five months in prison beyond the date he was eligible for release by law, and the board followed its guidelines system to determine his parole. The clemency recommendation was for parole release at eligible, for a parole release at eligibility. Mallory was released five months later. His parole release is not COVID-19 related. I'm, I'm trying not to be enraged. I'm, I'm trying not to be livid. The board members for the Board of Pardon and Paroles. Terry Bernard is the chairman of the State Board of Pardon and Paroles. He was elected chairman for fiscal year 2020. It is his fifth term as chairman. He has previously served as vice chairman. He was appointed by Sonny Perdue and reappointed uh, by Nathan Deal. He's a former state representative. 
He lives along the coast. He shepherded in his bio every bill introduced in the Georgia legislature that had any impact on the Department of Corrections during his years in office. The irony is he guided through the Georgia House the framework for the State Sex Offenders Registry and Sexual Predators Review Board. He's a native of Tattnall County. He makes his home at Shellman Bluff on the Georgia coast. Brian Owens is the vice chairman of the parole board. He was appointed to the parole board by Nathan Deal. He's the former commissioner of the Georgia Department of Corrections. He and his wife reside in middle Georgia. James Mills is from Hall County, appointed by Nathan Deal. He served as chairman for the year 2018. He's a former state representative. During his years, he sponsored and assisted in legislation, including putting the words in God we trust on the Georgia state flag. He lives in Hall County. Jacqueline Bunn was put on the board by Nathan Deal. Nathan Deal, Nathan Deal, Nathan Deal. Has Brian Kemp added any of these people? She was put on the board by Nathan Deal. She lives, she's a native Georgian. She lives in Atlanta. David Herring, put on the board by Nathan Deal. Joined the Georgia Department of Public Safety in 1994 as a state trooper. He received the Governor's Public Safety Award for Heroism in 2001. Was recognized by the Gainesville Kiwanis Club as Trooper of the Year. Yet again, Hall County. These are the members of the Board of Pardon and Paroles. Terry Bernard, Brian Owens, James Mills, Jacqueline Bunn, David Herring, all of them Nathan Deal appointees. Brian Kemp has not put any of these people on. Let me read you what the, what it says. Created by constitutional amendment in 1943, the Georgia Par- Parole Board is a national model for stable and professional leadership. The agency was well constructed. It contains authority to carry out established needs of the criminal justice system, flexibility to address unfair foreseen challenges and protection to make decisions on paroles free from political influence. What has made Georgia's board such a leader, however, is the professionalism of its members. Their collective experience and commitment to criminal justice ideals keep Georgia's board continually attuned to long-term as well as short-term public safety solutions. These people are allowing a child predator out of jail who was sentenced to a thousand years in prison And he hasn't been in there for seven years. They are letting this child predator out of jail. The, the, according to the judge, the most prolific collector of child pornography in the entire world, the most prolific collector of child pornography in the entire world is being let out of prison by the Georgia board of pardons and paroles. If they consider themselves a model for stable and professional leadership, they need to rethink what those words mean. Terry Bernard, Brian Owens, James Mills, Jacqueline Bunn, David Herring. Maybe you need to rethink what you have done, letting out of jail, letting out of prison, out of state prison, a man the judge referred to as probably the most prolific collector of child pornography in the entire world. 26,000 files on his computer of children tortured and raped 
and molested, exploited sexually. 26,000 of these files. And the state board and a pardon and parole sees a man who was convicted, sentenced to a thousand years in prison. And they're letting this man out. How do you remove that? They, they should all resign. Every single last one of these people should resign. And if they don't resign, they should be impeached. That's horrific. Seven years ago, Peter Mallory was sentenced to a thousand years in prison. And now he's going to be freed. And as the district attorney points out, in an internet age, the, the evidence at trial showed that part of this was compulsion. Compulsion. It wasn't just choice. He's addicted. And he's going to have a computer. Oh, he'll be supervised. But do you really believe a man convicted and sentenced to prison for a thousand years and only there for seven is really going to learn his lesson, particularly if there's evidence that there's compulsion on his part to do this? 26,000 pictures. The Georgia Pardon and Parole Board members should all resign. They should resign or they should be impeached, whatever it is, to remove these people. They need to go. This is wrong. I am all about grace and forgiveness. But man, I'm telling you, a thousand-year prison sentence for collecting 26,000 pictures of children being raped and tortured and sexually exploited, and he's in prison for seven years and they led this monster out? They need to be put under the jail. They need to get this guy back in prison. He does not need to be in society. He does not need to be in society. This is a screw-up of a system that says it is a model for stable and professional leadership. This is outrageous. Where are our state legislators on this? Morally preening. I'm sure they'll rush to the camera and say, I'm outraged by this, but there's nothing we can do about it. No, they need to do something about this. This is a total screw-up. And if you're not outraged by this, you should be outraged by this. I assume you all, I am disgusted. I am I am genuinely, I, I, I really actually do want to throw up right now. Thinking about what this guy did. 26,000 pictures. And they let him out after seven years. That's not justice. That is not justice. This is horrible. Every single one of these people should resign. If they had character, they would. I dare them to defend this. I dare them to defend it. I, I want to do this one more time because, you know, I, I'm not into cancel culture. Um, I'm not, and I, I really abhor it, but you, when I see public officials screw up this badly, you need to know, and they may be in your community. 
And given the, the listenership and the reach of this audience across the state of Georgia, you need to know the names of these people who let out a, a, a man, the judge who sentenced this man to a thousand years in prison, called him the most prolific collector of child pornography in the world. He was sentenced to prison for a thousand years and after seven, they've let him out. Terry Bernard, Brian Owens, James Mills, Jacqueline Bunn, and David Herring. These are the board members of the Georgia Board of Pardon and Paroles. Uh, if if they are if if this is our model board of pardon and paroles, these people need to be run out of the state. It is just horrific and disgusting that they would do this. I, I'm actually really mad about. And you know, I I try not to. Man, this one just this pisses me off. I got kids. I, I, I don't I don't even know what to say. I want to let it go. It makes me mad. I how do you how do you do this? This is a system that fails. And you know, okay, you know one reason I'm I'm this is enough to be mad at. And, and I I debated whether or not to play you guys the the interview or not. I'm I'm frustrated by my interview with John. So I interviewed John Bolton yesterday about his book. I wanted to interview him. And if you've listened to this program a, a, a very long time, um, what I what I have done is I, I I don't like to be combative with people I invite on my show. I try to be a nice guy to people and, and, and give them enough rope to hang themselves. And I think John Bolton did. And I'm actually really profoundly disappointed because I have always liked and respected John Bolton. And so I let him make his case on uh, my evening show yesterday. Why did he leave the White House? Because the president did not fire John Bolton. Just just let's be clear here. Uh, I know of no one in the White House who, other than the president, claims that John Bolton was fired. John Bolton uh, left as a protest uh, following Mattis's lead. Mattis left because the president abandoned the Kurds. Uh, John Bolton left because the president wanted to invite the Taliban to Camp David to conduct peace. And John Bolton wanted no part of it. And so he quit under protest. Uh, as a protest. And and so I asked him to do that. But in his book, I read his book and John Bolton spent uh, several pages in the middle of the book talking about uh, the Chinese concentration camps of the Uyghurs. I don't, you don't know. You probably don't even know who the Uyghurs are. They're an ethnic minority in China. They're not part of the Han Chinese of a of a mainline Chinese ethnicity. They are Central Asian, essentially conquered by the Chinese, and they are overwhelmingly Muslim. And they are treated as slave labor by the Chinese. They're put into concentration camps. Uh, the women are sterilized. Uh, those who are not sterilized, their children are taken away from them. They're placed in a surveillance state. They're forced to work long hours. And the Chinese would like them all to die. And according to John Bolton, the president of the United States, knew all of this and turned a blind eye to it so that he could get a trade deal with China. And I asked John Bolton, after, after all of this, I let him explain who the Uyghurs are and what their treatment was. And I said, why wasn't that enough? If the president's turning, the leader of the free world is turning a blind eye to concentration camps. Why wasn't that enough for you to leave? Do you know what his response to me was? That, well, some people wanted me to leave sooner. Some people wanted me to leave later. Some people never wanted me to leave. Some people never wanted me to be there. But unless you've walked in my shoes, you can't really understand. You can't really judge me. But that's what he wants us to do to the president of the United States.
We haven't walked in the president's shoes and neither has John Bolton. And yet he wants to write a book for us to condemn the president of the United States, though we haven't walked in the president's shoes. And yet John Bolton wants us to look at this. The the man spends multiple pages of his book uh, uh, about the concentration camps and the president turning a blind eye to it. And yet he turns a blind eye to it, too. And that disappoints me because I've always liked the guy. I always thought he was was a principled guy. And now I see he, too, is just an opportunist, just an opportunist. He wanted to make excuses for his own behavior and say, don't judge me while condemning the president. Um, Rank opportunism on his part. And that bothered me deeply as someone I've long respected and looked up to. And to see he really is what he claims others are. The veneer is off. And, man, I'm disappointed all around. In February, when COVID-19 was a distant concept to most Americans, gold was in the $1,500 range. The Dow was over 29000 Today, as the virus tears apart the economy, gold's over $1,700, and the Dow is around 24000 to 26000 Wobbling in between, major market disruptions favor gold, instability, uncertainty, impending inflation, they all favor gold. If you've not diversified some of your savings into gold, there's no better time than today. Protect your savings from further setbacks in the stock market. Gold, it's a safe haven. The company I trust with precious metal purchases is Birch Gold Group. And right now, thanks to a little-known IRS tax law, you can even move your IRA or your eligible 401k into an IRA backed by physical gold and silver. It's perfect for those who want to protect their hard-earned retirement savings from any more downturns in the stock market. Look back historically, when the bottom falls out of everything else, gold tends to be a safeguard savings. Contact Birch Gold Group to request a free info kit on physical precious metals. See if diversifying into gold and silver makes sense for you. The comprehensive 20-page kit reveals how gold and silver can protect your savings and how you can legally move your IRA or your 401k out of risky stocks and bonds into a precious metals IRA. To get your no-cost, no-obligation kit, go to birchgold.com slash Erickson. That's B-I-R-C-H gold.com slash Erickson, E-R-I-C-K. K-S-O-N. Well, we have the latest version of the Tide Pod Challenge. Welcome, it's Eric Erickson here, the Eric Erickson Show. The phone number, 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. Young people in Alabama, it's always Alabama. They're throwing COVID-19 parties. It's a competition where people who have the virus attend, and the first person to get infected receives a payout. Uh, oh boy. You know, look, people used to do measles parties. Uh, now, now they're, now they're doing this. Uh, this is, this is ridiculous. Uh, really, really ridiculous. Um, I'm, I got nothing. Uh, I, 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 I genuinely, I'm, I just, we're, we're not going to get college football, are we? We're, we're not because uh, because people aren't doing what they need to do. I, I You know, something that, that is working, though, the economy is starting to work. We've got great news on the economy. Here's the president. On that and the uninsurance benefits, Mitch McConnell uh, yesterday signaled his support for an extension, the $600 figure. Do you agree with that number? Do you think it should be less? We're, we're getting together. We're going to meet tonight and we're going to make a determination, but it's going to be a, a good number. It's a substantial number. People are going to be very happy. One thing that's happening and you see it, you see it with the numbers and we have big numbers coming out. Hopefully they're going to be good. They're very important. 
But uh, when you see what's happening with jobs, when you see that we're doing record numbers of jobs in the history of our country, we've never created more jobs than what we did last month, that last month number. Uh, retail sales are at a record number, especially when you talk about increase. When you look at percentage increase, nobody's ever seen anything like it. So we're headed back in a very strong fashion with a V. And I think we're going to be very good with the coronavirus. I think that at some point uh, that's going to sort of just disappear, I hope. You still believe so? Disappear? Well, I do. I do. Yeah, sure. At some point. And I think we're going to have a vaccine very soon, too. I think we're going to have a vaccine very soon. I I will tell you, I, I talked to someone on background yesterday who tells me that he he actually is less optimistic about a vaccine now uh, than he was a few weeks ago that based on the research he's seen coming down the pipeline, both here and at Oxford in Great Britain, that a vaccine may only be 60 to 70% effective and that about 25% of Americans will refuse to get it because it's been so rushed uh, and that that will completely impact uh, the, the spread, the, the um, lack of immunity. But... Here's the thing. Um, we are making progress. I'm I'm by nature a pessimist. I'm never disappointed. I, I, I heard one time, oh, who was it? Um, oh, was it Stockdale? You remember Admiral Stockdale? He ran with Rossborough. Well, I was a kid when it happened. Some of you younger than me wouldn't remember it at all. I was a kid when it happened. Who am I? Why am I here? I remember that uh, from the debate. Uh, and that's about the only thing I remember about him. And he apparently had been in... The, a prison camp as well, if I remember right. I think this is the guy I'm, I'm thinking of. Uh, with the same one, the Hanoi Hilton with John McCain, and asked what the big difference was between uh, those who survived and those who didn't. And he said that uh, those who didn't were optimists. The ones who survived were pessimists. The pessimists were never disappointed and, and really didn't build their whole life around hope, which is a terrible thing to, to say, I guess, to a degree. But He's not wrong. Um, he, he's he's not wrong. And, well, there you have it. Um, I'm a pessimist. and But that being said, there actually is uh, cool technology that is in the pipeline. Uh, filtration systems uh, that catch the virus and uh, drugs that actually minimize the impact of the virus. And there are vaccines coming. And I think that is uh, – it, it's it's – we're headed in the right direction on this. I don't think, but so let's say there is a second wave of the virus. Let's let's just say there's a second wave of the virus. I I still don't think that um, it's going to be as bad as the first wave because along the way, uh, what we're going to see is all of this new and improved technology, and and that makes a real difference. Now. I need to move back uh, into some state legislative stuff because um, this this is this is one of those things. I, I don't know if you realize this. The state legislature here in Georgia that they had the end of their session finally, and they decided to cut the pay of the legislature by ten percent. The salaries uh, were $17,342 a year. That's what the legislature, it's part-time work. They meet for three months. Now, they do other stuff, too. They do committees. They do constituency work, all that sort of stuff. But it's 17342 years, and they cut it by 10%. And you know who's complaining? The Democrats are complaining. Now, I want to read you part of this by James Salzer. 
The state budget Governor Brian Kemp signed into law this week that slash spending didn't contain furloughs for more than 100,000 state and university staffers, but it did include a pay cut for all 236 Georgia legislators and the lieutenant governor. After long going without a raise in their $17,342 a year part-time salaries, the move irked some Democrats and immediately became a campaign talking point in the hotly contested battle for control of the Georgia House in the fall elections. The majority Republicans who pushed the 10% pay cut said trimming their salaries helped reduce the need to furlough General Assembly staff. Most state agencies took 10% budget cuts this fiscal year because of the downturn in the economy and drop in tax revenue due to the coronavirus pandemic. The cut in legislator pay amounts to about $400,000 of the $2.2 billion legislators cut from the budget. We have an opportunity to be leaders, said Trey Kelly, the House Majority Whip. We have an opportunity to say us first. But Democrats say the low pay prevents most Georgians from being able to serve in the General Assembly. What you're doing by doing what you've been doing for 23 years, wait, 23 years, 23 years, 23. So what you've been doing since before Republicans even took over the state is you're creating a legislature where only two types of people will serve here, the very rich and the dirt poor, said Al Williams from Midway. Those who don't need the pay and those for whom any money would be a pay raise. Um, I got a a problem here. Some of them may say it's a full-time job and some of them may treat it as a full-time job, but it's not a full-time job. They show up for three months. It is a lot of work. I, I know people who, have, who are in or have been in the state legislature, and they've got full-time jobs, and they're dealing with constituent work. you got to have a passion and a commitment to do it. Um, but can you imagine, we, we raise the pay of the state legislature, let's say, to $50,000 a year. You're going to get people who want to be a legislator as a full-time job. And you know what's going to happen when you get a legislature uh, full of people who are full-time legislators? They completely lose tr- cut touch with the society around them. Uh, they're not impacted by it. They got guaranteed pay from, from the state. They're not working in real jobs. They no longer see how state regulation impacts them and their lives and their businesses. Uh, this is ridiculous. Uh, and, and the Democrats want to essentially turn the legislature into a, a, a sort of welfare state for Democratic politicians who can have full-time jobs in the left. Our legislature should stay part-time. You know, I was on a city council and make it worst job I ever had. Got paid $10,000 a year for a horrible job. Uh, and I left it uh, about four months short because I got a full-time job on radio and I couldn't be an elected person and have a radio job. The FCC wouldn't have liked that very much. Uh, so I left. And it was miserable. Where I hate it, man. Y'all, there's, there's this thing called a constituent. And constituents inevitably are stupid people. And they just want to complain about everything. And you, you have a constituent come up to you and it's always, why, why my trash or, or my, my pothole or, or you, you name it. And I was just, it, it was, it was, and then you have these whiners who come up who, who they, they want you just to raise taxes to fund their pet project. They got a pet project and by God, you better raise everybody else's taxes. They don't pay taxes. They want you to raise money to pay taxes. I was, I, yeah, I, I'm, 
listen, God bless those of you who want to serve in office. I did it. I got elected. I ran an election. I won. I served, and I never want to do it again. I am perfectly fine being on. I've been in the man in the arena, and now I just like being on the outside throwing rocks at the idiots who've decided to go in the arena. <laughs> no, but seriously, I, I mean, it, it's a part-time job. And the fact that the Democratic solution in Georgia was to raise everybody's taxes, we're in a global pandemic where people can't even go to work and businesses are shutting down. And the Democratic solution was to raise taxes on the business owners who can't reopen their businesses and then pay members of the legislature even more money to be part-time legislators. What's next? They're, they're gonna, they want to raise the money to 50000 a year and then say, hey, now you've got to have a full-time legislature that meets all year long so we can be crazy like New Jersey and California. You know what happens when you have a, a state legislature that meets full-time like in California and New Jersey? You have a bunch of people with idle time on their hands who make up laws to justify their existence. It's not like they're going to have more regulatory oversight. It's not like they're going to haul in the Board of Pardon and Paroles in Georgia to find out why they let a, a child child pornographer who, who is sentenced to a thousand years in jail out after seven years. They're, they're not going to do all of that. They don't want to do that. No, 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 no. They, they, they want the money and they want to justify their existence by passing more laws. And I'm sorry, that's a little bit ridiculous to me. It is a little bit ridiculous. I, my friends, um, want you to note, I want you to pay attention that the Democrats in Georgia want to raise the pay of the legislature while they're cutting everything else in the budget. They want to raise taxes and the pay of a part-time legislature. And I, I got to tell you, I am opposed to that, and you should be opposed to that. And I think that, that in the suburbs of Georgia, there are a number of people who've decided they, they hate the president so much they're going to take it out on the uh, complete Republican Party, and it's going to be bad. The polling I see in Georgia continues to be terrible. And Joe Biden and Donald Trump arguing over who is more senile than the other one, I don't think is a message that works for either one of them. And there are going to be a lot of people who just stay home, and maybe that will help the president. I don't know. He's still got time. Uh, you know, we we are, we are get every day closer and closer to the election. Uh, the president's campaign continues to change things around. Here's the president talking about Joe Biden, by the way. I want to ask you about your opponent coming up in November, Joe Biden. He has a much different tax vision than you. He talks about taxing the wealthy, about increasing the corporate rate from 21 to 28 percent. Uh, Mr. President, in this environment of double-digit unemployment right now, do you worry that that message might resonate better? I think what happens is if you do that, you're going to crash the market. We have a market that's going to be, I believe, by sometime early next year, could even be sooner, at record levels. You're going to crash the market. 401ks will be down the tubes. Uh, the wealth of the country will be down. No, he really wants to, just to put it more accurately, he just wants to raise everyone's taxes because they want to spend it on nonsense. They want to spend it on things that don't work. They want to give the money away. And I don't think people are going to stand for it. They want to, the Democrats want to raise taxes, and it's going to ultimately be everybody's taxes. That will kill the market. It'll kill everything that we're doing. It'll kill jobs, and it'll be very bad. I think that, frankly, the stock market's doing well, but it's an overhang. If he got elected, and they say this, if he got elected, that's an overhang over the market because the market would crash. 
would absolutely would crash. crash. Market would go down by a tremendous amounts. Uh, he'd raise taxes. He'd raise regulations. Look, one of the biggest things I've done is I've cut regulations more than any president in history. We still have regulations, but they're much less. If Biden got in, and first of all, it wouldn't be him because he's not into regulation. He doesn't know. He doesn't know where he is. Frankly, I watched his press conference yesterday. He's answering. I mean, he's answering questions like this from a teleprompter. I said, "What's that all about?" But his people, the people around him, are radical left. They're going to raise taxes. They're going to raise regulations, and they're going to put everyone out of business. It would be a disaster. He would. Joe Biden is already out there saying taxes are going to have to be raised. We're we're in a global pandemic. The economy is wrecked. It, it shows signs of life now, and. Joe Biden wants to put that on pause. We, we know what happens when you raise taxes. It's going to slow down the economy. And if the president will focus on this, if he'll just focus, please, sir, please focus. He can win in November, but I, I just, you know, there are people around the president who are deeply skeptical of his ability to focus. And I'm increasingly skeptical of his ability to focus. It, it, it concerns me greatly, but man, we got to, we got to endeavor to make that happen. Yes, you can be on the program if you want to be on the program. 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. You're more than welcome to. I, my friends, uh, want to spend a moment uh, talking about Mark Zuckerberg. Uh, Mark Zuckerberg, I, I, I know him a little bit, and he is embattled. And the real reason he's embattled really has nothing to do with your privacy rights and ad sales and uh, the, the alleged bullying and all that. Let me tell you what's going on with Facebook. In 2008 and 2012, the media wrote these hagiographic, worshipful profiles of Mark Zuckerberg and Facebook because uh, Barack Obama used the data to target people effectively to turn them out to vote for Barack Obama. And uh, the Barack Obama team itself credited Facebook's data with helping Barack Obama win. And in 2016, Hillary Clinton's team uh, refused to do what Obama did, but the Trump team did. Now, here's the funny thing that is left out of most media stories. The Facebook team was willing to help the Clinton team and the Trump team. The Facebook people actually sent embeds to Trump and to Clinton to help them learn how to target people and do demographic profiles and the like to make effective use of Facebook. And it was the Trump team that took them up on it and worked with them and did it. And he won. And now the media would have you believe that $20,000 spent by Russian trolls on Facebook cost Hillary Clinton the election, among other things, and that it's all Facebook's fault. They are mad at Facebook because Hillary Clinton lost. If Joe Biden harnesses Facebook and wins in November, all will be forgiven. But they operate as if they should own Facebook and they don't. You never hear them say the same thing about Twitter or Google. Uh, Google and Twitter get passes largely because they are ideologically oriented to the left and it shows. Uh, Twitter is is way more willing to um, mute, turn off, disable an account, or ban a conservative than than Facebook is. Google is is perfectly happy to shape its algorithms to show you left wing data on Google and ignore right wing data. Facebook has a much more even hand in what it does. 
It's not perfect. There are still a lot of progressives there. But by and large, Facebook uh, has been way more fair to the president and his team than any of the other social media outlets out there, from YouTube with Google to Twitter. And so the left is coming for Facebook. So what they've decided to do is start having an advertiser ban. And I find it actually very funny because one of the ways that they're doing the advertiser ban is they are um, <laughs> they, they, they got the advertisers, the left did, to block Facebook, to ban Facebook ads. Well, the advertisers say, well, you know, we're not just going to do it to Facebook. We're going to do it to Twitter as well. And now the left is scrambling because they view Twitter as theirs. And suddenly they've got Twitter revenue is, is collapsing. Facebook has enough money in the bank. They don't really care. Zuckerberg finally came out and said, look, we're, we're not going to make changes due to bullies uh, trying to get us boycotted, which is leadership. That's the sort of leadership we need in the nation. You've got Republican members of Congress who want to abandon Columbus Day for Juneteenth. And I understand the economic argument, and, and I, I've actually long supported Juneteenth as a national holiday. But you got these Republican members of Congress, oh, yeah, let's get rid of that Columbus guy. He's bad, uh, and we'll give you Juneteenth. There's a reason they picked Columbus Day. You've you've got the Republicans bending over backwards for the woke mob. I mean, to some degree, Tucker Carlson's right on this. I, I I do think that some people, including Tucker, occasionally go too far in attacking Republicans who want to acknowledge there's a problem. There is a problem. But caving to the mob is not the solution. And Mark Zuckerberg alone in the United States right now seems to get it. You know, this is part of my frustration with the whole John Bolton interview that I had with him is that he – I assumed he was a leader, a responsible, mature leader, and he's not. He, he clearly has come off as an opportunist, and I was really disappointed. Zuckerberg at least is leading his company saying we're not going to bend to the mob on this. If we bend to the mob on this, we'll have to bend to the mob on everything. It sets a dangerous precedent. He seems to get that, and he should be praised for it. Instead, the left is condemning him. But the reason they're condemning him is because they think they should should own Facebook. They think Facebook, by virtue of being social media, is in their pocket, and it's not, and they are outraged. And that, frankly, is one reason I think conservatives need to be careful and distinguish between what Facebook does and what Twitter and Google do. Because at Google, you, you've got uh, malicious malcontents on the left trying to shape their algorithm to censor you, and that actually isn't happening at Facebook, by and large. I do this on this date every year. And this is my first time in, in syndication doing this. And you will have to bear with me because I'm going to do it all over again tomorrow, too. Uh, one programming note, though. Tomorrow at this moment for, hey, uh, attention, the, the hey, local radio stations, uh, if your managers are in the office now, you need to hear this. This is important. Not sending out an email to you. Just so you know, at, at this time tomorrow, 1135 a.m. tomorrow, July 3rd, the director of the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention is going to join me. Robert Redenfield is going to join me um, across the network of show network of stations. Uh, so be here then. Uh, at some point tomorrow, though, I, I will essentially go through this again. Two hundred forty-four years ago today, the Second Continental Congress, meeting in Philadelphia, agreed to these words. The United Declaration of the 13 United States of America, when in the course of human events, it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political bands which have connected them with another 
and to assume among the powers of the earth the separate and equal station to which the laws of nature and nature's God entitle them, a decent respect to the opinions of mankind requires that they should declare the causes which impel them to the separation. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed, that whenever any form of government becomes destructive of these ends, it is the right of the people to alter or abolish it, and to institute new government, laying its foundation on such principles and organizing its powers in such form as to them shall seem most likely to affect their safety and happiness. Prudence, indeed, will dictate that governments long established should not be changed for light and transient causes, and accordingly all experience has shown that mankind are more disposed to suffer while evils are sufferable than to right themselves by abolishing the forms to which they are accustomed. But when a long train of abuses and usurpations pursuing invariably the same object evinces a design to reduce them under absolute despotism, it is their right, it is their duty to throw off such government and to provide new guards for their future security. Such has been the patient sufferance of these colonies, and such is now the necessity which constrains them to alter their former systems of government. The history of the present King of Great Britain is a history of repeated injuries and usurpations, all having in direct object the establishment of an absolute tyranny over these states. To prove this, let facts be submitted to a candid world. He has refused his assent to laws, the most wholesome and necessary for the public good, he has forbidden his governors to pass laws of immediate and pressing importance unless suspended in their operation till his assent should be obtained, and when so suspended, he has utterly neglected to attend to them. He has refused to pass other laws for the accommodation of large districts of people unless those people would relinquish the right of representation in the legislature, a right inestimable to them and formidable to tyrants only. He has called together legislative bodies at places unusual and comfortable and distant from the depository of their public records for the sole purpose of fatiguing them into compliance with his measures. He has dissolved representative houses repeatedly for opposing with manly firmness his invasions on the rights of the people. He has refused for a long time after such dissolutions to cause others to be elected, whereby the legislative powers, incapable of annihilation, have returned to the people at large for their exercise, the state remaining in the meantime exposed to all the dangers of invasion from without and convulsions within. He has endeavored to prevent the population of these states, for that purpose obstructing the laws of naturalization of foreigners, refusing to pass others to encourage their migration hither, and raising the conditions of new appropriations of lands. He has obstructed the administration of justice by refusing his assent to laws for establishing judiciary powers. He has made judges dependent on his will alone for the tenure of their offices and the amount and payment of their salaries. He has erected a multitude of new offices and sent hither swarms of officers to harass our people and eat our substance. He has kept among us in times of peace standing armies without consent of our legislatures. He has affected to render the military independent of and superior to the civil power. He has combined with others to subject us to a jurisdiction foreign to our constitution and unacknowledged by our laws, giving his assent to these acts 
of pretend legislature legislation for quartering large bodies of armed troops among us for protecting them by a mock trial from punishment for any murders which they should commit on the inhabitants of these states for cutting off our trade with all parts of the world for imposing taxes on us without our consent for depriving us in many cases of the benefits of trial by jury for transporting us beyond seas to be tried and for pretended offenses for abolishing the free system of english laws in a neighboring province establishing therein an arbitrary government and enlarging its boundaries so as to render it at once an example and fit instrument for introducing the same absolute rule into these colonies, for taking away our charters, abolishing our most valuable laws, and altering fundamentally the forms of our governments, for suspending our own legislatures and declaring themselves invested with power to legislate for us in all cases whatsoever. He has abdicated government here by declaring us out of his protection and waging war against us. He has plundered our seeds, ravaged our coasts, burned our towns, and destroyed the lives of our people. He is at this time transporting large armies of foreign mercenaries to complete the works of death, desolation, and tyranny already begun with circumstances of cruelty and perfidy scarcely paralleled in the most barbarous ages and totally unworthy the head of a civilized nation. He has constrained our fellow citizens taken captive on the high seas to bear arms against their country, to become the executioners of their friends and brethren, or to fall themselves by their hands. He has excited domestic insurrections amongst us and has endeavored to bring out the inhabitants of our frontiers, the merciless Indian savages, whose known law, rule of warfare is an undistinguished destruction of all ages, sexes, and conditions. In every stage of these oppressions, we have petitioned for redress in the most humble terms. Our repeated petitions have been answered only by repeated injury. A prince whose character is thus marked by every act which may define a tyrant is unfit to be the ruler of a free people. Nor have we been wanting in uh, attentions to our British brethren. We have warned them from time to time of attempts by their legislature to extend an unwarrantable jurisdiction over us. We have reminded them of the circumstances of our immigration and settlement here. We have appealed to their native justice and magnanimity, that, and we have conjured them by the ties of our own kindred, own common kindred to avow, disavow these usurpations, which would inevitably interrupt our connection and correspondence. They, too, have been deaf to the voice of justice and consanguinity. They must, therefore, acquiesce in the necessity which denounces our separation and hold us, as we hold the rest of mankind, enemies in war and in peace friends. We, therefore, the representatives of the United States of America, in general Congress assembled, appealing to the Supreme Judge of the world for the rectitude of our intentions, do, in the name and by the authority of the good people of these colonies, solemnly publish and declare that these united colonies are, and of right ought to be, free and independent states, and they are absolved from all allegiance to the British crown, and that all political connection between them and the state of Great Britain is and ought to be totally dissolved, and that as free and independent states, they have full power to levy war, conclude peace, contract alliances, establish commerce, and do all other acts and things which independent states may of right do. And for the support of this declaration, with a firm reliance on the protection of divine providence, we mutually pledge to each other our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. Signed in Philadelphia. Passed on July 2nd, 1776, 244 years ago today. Signed two days later so that word could circulate, so that they had time to, to read it. They came back on July 4th. John Adams believed that today would be the day of independence. 
But it's July 4th, we recognize, which is a Saturday. They returned and they signed their names. From Georgia, Button Gwinnett, Lyman Hall, and George Walton. From North Carolina, William Hopper, Joseph Hughes, John Penn. From South Carolina, Edward Rutledge, Thomas Hayward Jr., Thomas Lynch Jr., Arthur Middleton. From Massachusetts, John Hancock. From Maryland, Samuel Chase, William Packer, Thomas Stone, Charles Carroll of Carrollton. From Virginia, George Wythe, Richard Henry Lee, Thomas Jefferson, Benjamin Harrison, Thomas Nelson Jr., Francis Lightfoot Lee, Carter Braxton. From Pennsylvania, Robert Morris, Benjamin Rush, Benjamin Franklin, John Morton, George Clymer, James Smith, George Taylor, James Wilson, George Ross. From Delaware, Caesar Rodney, George Reed, Thomas Meekin. From New York, William Floyd, Philip Livingston, Francis Lewis, Lewis Morris. From New Jersey, Richard Stockton, John Witherspoon, Francis Hopkinson, John Hart, Abraham Clark. From New Hampshire, Josiah Bartlett, and William Whipple. From Massachusetts as well, Samuel Adams, John Adams, Robert Treat Payne, Elbridge Jerry. From Rhode Island, Stephen Hopkins and William Ellerly. From Connecticut, Roger Sherman, Samuel Huntington, William Williams, Oliver Walcott, and Matthew Thornton, also of New Hampshire. These are the men who pledged their lives, their fortunes, and their sacred honor. Their homes were burned, their farms taken, their businesses destroyed, their children enslaved or killed, they themselves, some of them captured. I refuse to condemn these men. I refuse to rewrite American history as the New York Times would do and say these men forged a revolution against the greatest empire on planet Earth to protect a slavery institution most of them had hoard and many of them did not even own. And we at this time in American history are subjected to the revisionists of Marxist communists and people who hate this country and blame this country for their own failures in life. I refuse to condemn these men. They are not all good men. Some of them, in fact, history showed later, were bad men. I refuse to condemn these men because they established on the planet the greatest country the world has ever seen. A country that rarely lives up to the ideals set forth by these men that they themselves sometimes did not live up to, but that they put in front of us a piece of paper articulating an argument for the self-governance of a people on the planet and gave us an ideal for which we should always strive. And along, along come the professional grievance mongers and race baiters who disdain the freedoms of this country that include both the freedom to succeed and the freedom to fail. In an imperfect world full of imperfect people, and they attack the very founding of the country. They don't just tear down the statues of the slave-owning Confederates. They would tear down the statues of the men who fought the greatest empire on the planet and won. They tear down the statues of the men, but for whom they would not have the success of this country today. They can stand and do the things they do because these men were willing to pledge their lives, their fortunes, and their sacred honor to build a better world 
a world these people abhor because they're too busy nursing their grievances to stop and look at how awesome this country actually is. It is a flawed country filled with sinners. They reject the very idea of sin while also being willing to believe that their fellow neighbor is a bad person unless they agree. I will not condemn the signers of this document. They should be honored for what they did. It is amazing to read the words of the Declaration of Independence and see that these men got together, put their names on a document, and said, we should have the right to govern ourselves because these people in Great Britain no longer wish to govern us but subject us. We are no longer subjects. We will be citizens of a free and independent nation. And what we have in the streets today are a bunch of rich whiners who are nursing the grievances of of spoiled kids. Is there injustice in the United States of America? Yes, and there is everywhere. Are we a perfect nation? No, we are far from perfect, but we are way more perfect than every other nation. And we are way more perfect than every other nation because these men deliberately pledged their lives, their fortunes, and their sacred honor. They were willing to die for something better than what they had. And none of the little skinny jean hipsters running around throwing paint at George Washington statues would ever have the guts to do what these people did. What these people did was very real to them. It was not in the abstract. These were not abstract values for them, a revolution. These were not abstract values. They actually lived and died. They risked their property. They risked their homes. They risked their family because they had very real ideals and they actually believed it. This was not a revolution to protect slavery, as the New York Times would claim. It was not a revolution to protect mercantilism, as others would claim in the 50s and 60s. These people actually believed the stuff they wrote. We're supposed to take everyone at their word except the founders of this country who believe that they could build a better society that would be more free and more just. We're not supposed to take them at their word. When this was believed down to the middle class, you don't don't have to believe me. You can read the writings. And I'm not talking Thomas Paine and Thomas Jefferson and George Washington and Benjamin Franklin. Read the men who volunteered to go fight for the colonies. The letters to their wives, the letters from their wives to their children explaining why dad was gone. They really believed the values they were fighting for. These kids who are rioting in the streets right now, half of them don't even believe the stuff. They're just mad and bored. And they would never die for their country. They would never pledge their lives or their fortunes or their honor to build a better nation. They just want to nurse their grievances. The people who got together in that room in Philadelphia on this day, 244 years ago, had a real sense of what they were doing, a real mission and purpose. And the people who are protesting in the streets just want to upend that purpose. They think it's bad. And the irony is that they have benefited from the legacy of these men and now want to protest what they've benefited from. You want to talk about privilege? The privilege is to abandon your workplace, your job, your family, and go throw paint on George Washington. No, you're not going to have any repercussions for doing so. It was not a privilege for George Washington to march in the field knowing his entire family's lives could be ruined if not killed. And he did it anyway. Most of the people who are out there protesting right now would never do what George Washington did. He's a better man than any of them. And that's why we should celebrate him on President's Day and we should really celebrate our Independence Day.
I'm still aggravated about the Board of Pardon and Paroles. We're, we're going to have to n- continue to name and shame the, these people. And and I, I just I, I want to note um, very specifically that the uh, Board of Pardon and Paroles, none of them, none of them have been appointed by uh, by Governor Kemp. They're all Nathan Deal appointees held over. Uh, they've got terms uh, and uh, Governor Kemp hadn't had an opportunity to add any. So don't blame him for the Board of Pardon and Paroles, um, but he should certainly be calling for their impeachment or their removal or, or their reconsideration of this. This is this is horrible that a, a the most prolific child uh, pornography collector in the world lives in Georgia, was sentenced to a thousand years in jail, and they let him out after seven years. The Board of Pardon and Paroles did. That's horrible. Um. Man, I, I I was hoping to leave you guys in a in a let, let, let me leave you in a in a cheery mood with this. We really do live in a special country. A, a country so special, we're we're not a country made of blood and soil. We're we're a country premised on the ideas of the Declaration, and we're we're, we're not perfect, but we strive for that perfection. It really is remarkable. Uh, Bernard Balin writing the history, the ideological origins of the American Revolution, which is a book I think every American should read. I didn't know existed until college, and I, I read through it every once in a while. It, it is an academic work, but it's it's actually really refreshing to read. That you know, there's been this prevailing sentiment that um, that the American Revolution. Well, you know, you have the 1619 revisions from the New York Times that it was all about protecting slavery, which is is garbage. It's not true, and they want to start indoctrinating kids in that. And, and you've got uh, in the 1950s the prevailing wisdom that it was just upper middle class uh, merchants who were protecting their their trade deals. It was Bernard Balin who actually went through and decided, you know what, I'm not going to read Thomas Jefferson and, and uh, Benjamin Rush and Benjamin Franklin and George Washington and Alexander Hamilton. I'm not going to read their writings. We know what they wanted. I'm going to read the middle class. I'm going to read the lower middle class. I'm going to read the writings of, of the poor who could write. And he found those letters. He, he traveled the 13 original colonies. He, he looked for those letters. And you know what he found remarkably? That they believed it too that they wanted separation from Great Britain, that that they believed that they should be entitled to be masters of their own destiny through a, a, a republic to throw off the monarchy and build a republic. And it could have all come crashing down. You, you, you know, the, the founders referenced divine providence so much, and you can see it. Had they not won the, the battles along Lake Champlain and, and gotten the cannons... Had Bunker Hill gone differently? So many times things could have gone badly, and it didn't. Valley Forge, the crossing of the Delaware, George Washington's leadership. You know, Washington had not been a real capable guy. His first military encounters in the French-Indian War, he was lucky. He dodged bullets, but otherwise it made the situation worse. They put him in charge of it. And then he could have declared himself king, and they would have let him do it by then. They forgot. They lost all focus of, of throwing off a monarchy to form this republic, and, and Washington could have declared himself a monarch, and not only didn't he, but as president, refused the trappings of monarchy and then left after two terms, setting a precedent that was left until World War II with FDR. Remarkable divine providence. But you got to commit yourself to divine providence if you're going to get divine providence. And too many people in this country have decided to reject that. And you know what? We got to do better, folks. We got to do better. We'll talk about this more tomorrow.